Our text for this morning is taken from Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. As you are able, will you please stand for the reading of God's word? O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, it is good to be with you all again this week and back in the book of Galatians. Uh, October 31st was a couple of weeks ago. And while most of our country was gearing up to go outside and ask one another for candy dressed up in a myriad of costumes, some of you may know that October 31st marked the 505th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And what this means is that on this day, October 31st, in the year 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. Now, Martin Luther's initial purpose in nailing the 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, was simply to call a debate to come together around the Roman Catholic teaching at the time around indulgences. But God had much bigger plans for what was about to happen. In fact, the nailing of the 95 Theses to this church door would be the spark that God would use to recover the gospel message in the Western world. And that God would be turning the world upside down once more with the biblical message that we are saved not by religious tradition or by works of the law, but by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for God's glory alone. And this is why the song that we sang earlier this morning is called Reformation Song, this remembering of the gospel that was recovered 505 years ago, this last October 31st. Now, when you think about Martin Luther, for those of you who are familiar with him, we tend to think about him as a hero of the faith, right? One who is bold and even brash for the sake of the gospel. And the quote that I think comes to mind for most people when they think about Martin Luther is that when the Roman Catholic Church came to him in a trial and they said, you need to recant of your views, he said in response, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Like I said, right? A hero, one who has stood up for the gospel in the face of opposition. 
But what I think is actually more remarkable than this aspect of the legacy that is Martin Luther's life, and perhaps more helpful, is that when you read more and more of Luther's writings, what you find is not just a man who was bold for the sake of the gospel, but a man who was bold in his honesty about the state of his own soul. In fact, as we look at Martin Luther's commentary on this portion of Galatians, I want you to hear the boldness of Luther's confession concerning his own heart. Luther confesses, he says, I myself, though I am a doctor of divinity, I find in my own experience how difficult it is to overcome the bewitching temptations of self-righteousness. We must not say, I am perfect, I cannot fall. We should humble ourselves and be afraid that though we stand today, we may be overcome by false teaching tomorrow. I wonder how many of us resonate with this honest expression of Luther's bold confession. That even though we are among those this morning who are gathered together to hear God's word, who, like the Galatians in our passage, we are among those who have seen with our own eyes, as it were, Jesus Christ publicly portrayed as crucified through the preaching of the gospel. Even though we are among those people, we discover time and time again our tendency to be bewitched by this alluring forms of self-righteousness. That while we are fixing our eyes firmly on Christ this morning, you and I both know that come Monday morning, we will be tempted to look for our sense of righteousness, our sense of personal growth, our sense of goodness, our sense of meaning, not in Christ alone, but in something else. For the Galatians, it was the law of Moses, as was being taught by the Judaizers, that they had faith in Christ, but they needed something more. For Luther, it was the religious traditions of the Roman Catholic Church in the 1500s. What is it for you? Where on Monday morning will you be tempted to turn your eyes away from Christ for your righteousness and growth and look to something else? It's this tendency, this temptation that Paul is addressing in our passage this morning. Because what he's doing in this part of Galatians is he's stopping once more. He has finished talking about his apostleship, defending his apostleship against the Judaizers who would question his authority and likewise the the authority of the gospel itself. But Paul is actually pausing for a moment in this passage, and he is directly addressing the Galatians. He's directly addressing us. Again, he wants to grab our attention so that we would see ourselves in need of the remedy that he is going to give us, a remedy that will break the spell that is self-righteousness, this spell that tends to hold us hostage and, and is in danger of cutting us off from the blessings of the gospel. And so as we look at this passage this morning, I want you to hear, as it were, Paul's desire to break the spell of self-righteousness in your life. And how does he do that? Well, he says that we break this spell by fixing our eyes on Jesus alone and knowing in our hearts that all of the blessings, every single one of the blessings of our salvation are received through faith alone. 
And so as we dive into our passage this morning and explore what these blessings are and how they are received by faith, let us go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy toward us this morning, for gathering us together as your people to be among those who see, as it were, Jesus Christ crucified through the preaching of your word. Would you deepen our faith by your spirit, giving us illumination and understanding so that we would not be tempted and drawn away by self-righteousness, but that we would find in you Lord Jesus, all the blessings of our salvation, and that in that assurance we might walk faithfully as your people. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So Paul begins by starting to unravel the arguments of the Judaizers. And again, you remember that the argument of the Judaizers to the Galatian church was, your faith in Jesus is good, but it is not enough to be justified, that is to be declared righteous in God's sight, to be God's faithful people. You need something more than faith in Christ. And for them, they said, you need to keep the law of Moses. And Paul, pausing again to address the Galatians, he wants them to understand that this central point of our justification, that we are counted righteous in God's sight, only comes through faith alone in Christ alone. Now, he's made this perfectly clear in the chapters preceding our passage. You remember in chapter 2, verse 16, Paul says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. That is, by works of the law, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight. But even as Paul has made this point abundantly clear in the letter so far, I want you to put yourself in the Galatians' shoes. I want you to imagine for a second that the false teachers have infiltrated our church. And as they are beginning to convince us or seeking to convince us that we need to add something to our faith in Christ alone, I want you to imagine that we oppose them. We oppose these false teachers and we kind of recognize at some level that there's error in their teaching and so we begin to push against this false teaching. And so debates start cropping up in our church. Are the Judaizers right? Are the teaching that we've received from Paul, are, are those teachings right? And during these debates, I want you to imagine that the Judaizers pose to us a question, or to the Galatian church, a question. They say, how can you be sure? How can you be sure that you are counted as righteous in God's sight through faith alone? I want you to, to kind of get into this feeling of this question. You see that the Judaizers proposing this question to the Galatians, and they were saying, we have certainty. We have evidence of our righteousness, and they would point to the Mosaic law. They would say, look, the men have been circumcised. These dietary laws are being kept. All of these festivals are being observed. We have evidence of our righteousness before God, and it is certain and it is clear. You can imagine, you can understand how that would begin to confuse the Galatians. And so Paul wants to address that head on. 
He wants to say, not only is the false teachers giving you a false gospel, but the evidence that they are giving you is not grounded in anything at all. And what Paul does here in this first part of the letter is he actually gives the Galatians evidence. He says, you can be certain and you can be sure that your righteousness before God is in Christ alone through faith alone. And I want you to notice what he does in verses two through five, because the first evidence that he points to is God's work in the life of the Galatians, God's work in our lives. I want you to notice in verse two through five that Paul asks a series of rhetorical questions. He says things like, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Or verse five, does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, why, why wouldn't Paul just simply come out and say what he means? Why does he have to go through these hurdles of rhetorical questions? Well, this, this is the brilliance of a rhetorical question, right? And any of you who are parents who have used rhetorical questions with your kids kind of know the power of a rhetorical question is that it forces the person that you're talking to not simply to receive the answer easily, but to come to that conclusion themselves. The purpose of a rhetorical question is for the sake of the listener so that they would be forced to engage in the debate and in the conversation themselves and come to those conclusions. And what Paul is doing here is he is centering the Galatians on a series of experiences that they have had. And the way that he describes it is he says, the experience that he wants them to think about is receiving the Holy Spirit when the gospel of Jesus Christ was first preached to the Gentiles. There's nothing more important than this in the New Testament. As you look at the book of Acts, what you see are a series of episodes where the gospel is going forth from Christ to the disciples, outward and outward and outward to new groups of people. And the evidence that these people have received and believed the gospel is that they each, in their own experience, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The reason that this is so important to Paul is he'll say this in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, is that receiving the Holy Spirit is the most important thing about our lives. Because receiving the Holy Spirit is what unites us to Christ. It is who unites us to all the blessings of our salvation. I want you to listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 9. Paul says there, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Because here, how important this is to the Apostle Paul, not to get the Galatians thinking about the works of the law, but to recognize the centrality of receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, what is Paul alluding to specifically? I think if we, if we look through the book of Acts, the most helpful example of this, especially in the life of Gentiles, is found in Acts chapter 10. And it's here that Peter, not Paul, though I think that we are right to assume that these same types of, of experiences happened in the ministry of Paul, is Peter is brought by the Lord 
to the house of a man named Cornelius, who is a Gentile, not a Jew, and he launches into a preaching of the gospel. And I'm not going to rehearse it right now. You can read in verses 34 through 44 in Acts chapter 10 if you want to do that later. But here's what it says at the end of this passage. Peter is preaching the gospel in Christ alone. And then it says, while Peter was still saying these things, while he was still preaching the gospel, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. The Galate, or I'm sorry, the Gentile people heard the gospel with faith and they received the Holy Spirit just as their Jewish brothers and sisters earlier in the book of Acts heard the gospel of Jesus Christ believed with faith and received the Holy Spirit. And it says in Acts chapter 11, that as the church is trying to come to terms with what does it mean that we have Jewish and Gentile Christians, it says when they heard about these things, that is the Holy Spirit coming to the Gentiles through faith, when they heard these things, everybody fell silent and they glorified God saying, well then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Paul wants the Galatians to remember these experiences. He wants them to remember these experiences because by remembering them, they'll recognize, as we see in Acts chapter 10, that the Holy Spirit was not received by the works of the law. It is not as if the Gentiles were circumcised or kept dietary laws or kept specific festivals and then received the Holy Spirit. Paul wants them to remember their experience. They received the Spirit only through faith in the message of the gospel, the message of Christ alone. And Paul is confident that if they would just think back to their experience, they would recognize how foundationless the Judaizers' claims are. The Judaizers are saying, where's your evidence? And Paul is saying, will you just think about your own experience? Your own experience of receiving the Spirit by faith and not by works. That is certainty regarding God's work in your life and of your righteousness that has been received by Christ alone. That is the first part of that evidence. The second thing that Paul does is he says, not only do you have your experience, but you also have this clarity of God's word in scripture. And this is where Paul goes in verses six through nine. And in this, in this part of the letter, Paul is actually turning to the person of Abraham and to two passages in the book of Genesis. Now, we need to ask ourselves, why would Paul turn our attention, turn the Galatians' attention to Abraham? Well, if, if we, again, consider for a moment the arguments of the Judaizers, they're saying to these Galatians, to these Gentile Christians, listen, we know God. We are among God's people. God gave our people the scriptures. God gave our people the law. If you are truly wanting to be a part of God's people, then of course you would listen to the people with the most amount of experience. So listen to us, the Judaizers are saying. And the, and the Galatians, they're, they're still new to this whole aspect of God's word in scripture. And so they would have been led astray by these arguments of, well, look, in the Old Testament, we see God giving the law of Moses to his people, and that's what it means to be God's people. The reason Paul goes to Abraham is because he's looking to undercut this argument 
for the sake of the Galatians. I want you to, to notice here that when Paul goes to Abraham, he is actually taking the, the argument away from the law of Moses and he's pushing it further back in the narrative of Genesis. Instead of focusing on the law, what Paul is saying is let's go look at Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. Because if we find evidence that salvation comes through faith alone and not by works of the law in Abraham's life, then we can assume that this evidence is more compelling and more meaningful than any arguments that the Judaizers would be making from the law of Moses. The question is, is this what we see in the life of Abraham? Is righteousness, is his standing before God, Abraham standing before God, centered on his law-keeping, or is it centered on faith alone? And Paul just quotes Genesis chapter 15, some 400 years before the giving of the law, and simply says, just as Abraham, in verse 6, believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, if you were to turn back to Genesis chapter 15, this is where God makes a covenant with Abraham. He cuts a covenant to give Abraham these amazing promises that he would be Abraham's God, that Abraham's family would be his people, and this covenant is unilateral. God is the one who makes the covenant. God is the one who cuts the covenant. God is the one who walks through the ceremony, as you remember in Genesis chapter 15, to establish this covenant. And all it says in verse 6 of Genesis 15 is that Abraham believed the promises of God and that God counted it to him as Righteousness. This phrase counted it to Abraham as righteousness. Is that not that Abraham was all of a sudden righteous because of the work of faith? It is that by believing God, Abraham was imputed. He was seen as righteous by God. And so Paul is establishing in the life of Abraham to be a son of Abraham means to be like Abraham, our father. But Abraham was not justified. He was not declared righteous in his standing before God by keeping the law. He was declared righteous only through his faith in God's promises. And this is why Paul will later on say in Galatians that this message that Abraham received of, I will give you a son, and, and Abraham believing these promises of God, Paul says that is, in, in essence, an aspect of the gospel message of Christ being declared to Abraham beforehand. There's this echo of the gospel in Abraham, and that is what Abraham believes. Now, this leads us to our first question, something that we personally need to work through, and that is, where do you look for evidence for your righteousness? We're no different than the Galatians. Self-righteousness and all of its forms tempts us each and every day. We're tempted to look in different places for this sense of we are good people, that we will be acceptable in God's sight. And usually what we do is we'll look to an aspect of our identity and use that aspect of our identity as a litmus test for whether or not we are 
righteous. We'll look to that aspect of our identity to give us the evidence of whether or not we are acceptable in God's sight. We'll look to our job and our performance in that job. We'll look to our politics and the way in which we vote and the candidates that we align ourselves with. We'll look to our knowledge of the scriptures and our biblical convictions, and we'll use all of these things and so many more to to look to these things as evidence of our righteousness, as a way of saying, by looking at this thing, I can have certainty, I can have clarity about me being right in God's sight, whether it's political righteousness, religious righteousness, relational righteousness, a a righteousness of authenticity or tradition. When we are faced with all of these different types of self-righteousness, Paul in this letter is saying, you need to combat these temptations with the certainty and the clarity that comes from Christian experience, receiving the Holy Spirit, not by works of the law, but through faith in Christ alone. And the certainty of God's word, of Abraham giving us an example of what it means to be God's people is not as a person who keeps the law, but as a person who walks by faith. And I I think in Paul's mind, he kind of sets up this drama, this courtroom drama in the Galatians' lives and in our lives. Now, some of you may despise courtroom dramas, but I think that they're pretty exciting. Uh, And what I love about courtroom dramas is the speeches that the writers of these courtroom dramas kind of put into the story. And so the lawyer will prepare a speech to go up to a witness or to go up to the jury and put all the pieces together or uncover some hidden aspect of, of evidence. And it's as they begin to kind of unravel the true story that everything comes together and justice is served and the lawyer just looks so cool when it happens. And we see kind of this courtroom drama being very compelling. Paul is saying in your life, when you are tempted by self-righteousness, you need to act as a lawyer, as it were. You need to cross-examine yourself. Because as you cross-examine yourself and you say, are you sure that your job is where your righteousness is? Are you sure that your biblical convictions is where your righteousness is? Are you sure that steeping yourself in these religious traditions, are you sure that's where your righteousness is? And we go to Christian experience and we go to the scriptures. We will begin to play the part of this lawyer and we'll begin to uncover the truth. All the blessings, our righteousness is in Christ alone. It is imputed to us. That means it is given to us and it is received through faith alone. But Paul doesn't stop here. He doesn't simply say, cross-examine yourself when you are thinking about your standing before the Lord. He also says, you need to cross-examine yourself when you begin to think about your spiritual growth as well. And we're just going to look at one passage, and that is verse 3. Perhaps the most important, I think, for us to hear, he says, are you so foolish, Galatians? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So Paul is returning to this point of receiving the Holy Spirit, 
And he's, double, he's, he's kind of doubling down on the significance of this, not just for receiving our standing before God, our righteousness, but also our progress in the Christian faith. And so why, why does Paul do this? Why does Paul make a point with this rhetorical question to draw to mind not just our standing before God in Christ through faith alone, but also our progress in the Christian life. Well, I think, again, if we put ourselves in the shoes of the Galatians, let's take for a second that those debates are going on, and we point to the Christian experience, and we say, no, we as Gentile Christians, we receive the Holy Spirit through faith alone, not by works of the law. And we can even point to Abraham and say, no, Abraham was justified by faith alone, not by works of the law. Now, I want you to imagine in that debate, the Judaizers look at the Galatians, they look at us and they say, okay, fine, you can have justification by faith alone, but how can you be sure that you are growing in your faith? How can you be sure that you're progressing in the Christian life? That must account for something, right? And as we begin to ask that question of ourselves, we kind of get pushed back on our heels again. How can you be certain, how can you be sure, not just that you have righteousness through Christ alone, but that you're actually growing and maturing as Christians? And this is why the Apostle Paul is focusing again on the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit being this person of the Godhead that unites us to Christ and his righteousness is also the person that produces spiritual life in us. He says, having begun by the Spirit, in verse 3. Paul is emphasizing here the genesis of Christian lives is not the keeping of God's law, but the receiving of the Spirit. Jesus says this to the person Nicodemus, uh, a leader of the Jewish people in John chapter 3. Jesus said to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. That's John chapter 3. Jesus teaches, the apostle Paul here is emphasizing Spiritual life is not produced by keeping the law. Our spiritual life of being regenerated so that we may have spiritual life comes by the work of the Spirit. And it's because our life begins by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to make us alive so that we might have ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to believe. Because that is how our spiritual life begins it is also the Holy Spirit who produces spiritual fruit in our lives. I want you to notice what Paul says again in verse 3. 
He says, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? There's two things I want you to see at the end of this sentence. The first is that word perfected. It's a Greek word that means to come to the proper end of itself. So you think about how something could grow like an acorn out of the ground, and the proper end that is hopefully being achieved is a fully formed and you know, reproducing oak tree. And Paul is saying, if you begin by the Spirit, is that maturity, is that pr- production, is that happening by works of the law or by the Spirit? And the implication of the rhetorical question is, that's happening by the Spirit as well. But the second thing I want you to notice is what Paul equates with the works of the law. He doesn't say, are you now being perfected by the works of the law? He does say, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Our human effort is pointless when it comes to producing spiritual fruit. If we rely solely on human effort to keep God's law as evidence of our progress in the faith, Paul is saying what you will be doing is establishing your growth on fleshly things, not spiritual things. So the question is, well, how should we properly think about maturity in the Christian life. And I think the proper way to think about this, Paul brings up in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. Here's what he says about Christians in this passage. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined He also called. And those whom he also called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What is the aim of the Christian life? What is is perfection in the Christian life? It is not keeping the works of the law. It is being conformed to the image of Christ. And you may say, but Christ perfectly kept the law. And I would say, yes. He did. And so what that means is that as we are growing and we are progressing, we will relate to the law of God as Christ related to the law of God. But it doesn't mean that keeping the law and looking like Christ are synonymous. And and Paul makes this abundantly clear later on in Galatians. When thinking about the goal of God's people, He says, Galatians chapter 5 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. The Spirit of God indwelling the hearts of God's people, writing, as it were, the law of God on our hearts, The result of the spiritual fruit from that Holy Spirit is that we would be the kind of people who would love God and love others as Christ loved God and Christ loved others perfectly. The way that Tim Keller has articulated this is that the way the Spirit enters your life 
is the way the Spirit advances in your life. Or maybe to quote Jesus, to give us a a picture of what this looks like, is to quote Jesus in John chapter 15, verse 5. Here, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So the Galatians are being encouraged by Paul not just to see that the blessing of their justification is received through faith in Christ alone, but Paul is also teaching us that our sanctification, our progress in the Christian life, our growth in holiness is also received not by works of the law or religious traditions, but through faith in Christ alone. To abide in the vine by faith so that through the Spirit we might bear much fruit. Dane Ortland, uh, in his book Deeper, uh, which is a book that Pastor Mark has been uh, recommending to us for several weeks, and I too rec- recommend it to you, uh, in his chapter on our union with Christ, gives us, I think, a really helpful way of thinking about three terrible ways to think about our growth as Christians, and one biblical way to think about our growth as Christians. And the first three that he talks about are the, the, the paradigm of my growth happens of God, then me. That's the first one. And this is the view that God starts my spiritual life, and then I, through simply my sheer willpower, will begin to live faithfully as a Christian, essentially by keeping the law, by kind of aligning my life with biblical principles, God, then me. The second unbiblical form of growth that Dane draws attention to is God, not me. This is kind of the Jesus take the wheel mentality to spiritual growth, that all of a sudden God is the one who started my Christian life. Therefore, if God wants me to grow, if God wants me to change, if God wants to produce fruit in my life, then I just have to kind of sit back and let the fruit flow out of my life. And I think any, any one of us can take a moment to think about just how silly this sounds, that if God is the one that is starting this and there's no aspect of our participation, that nothing will actually be produced. There's also a third way that, that Dane draws attention to is God plus me, that, that God is the one who starts my spiritual life and even the one who begins my spiritual maturity, but it needs my help in some way, that God in some form or fashion needs me to add my kind of effort in order for these things to actually be accomplished. And instead of these three, God then me, God not me, God plus me, Dane says that the biblical doctrine of growth, of sanctification, is the phrase God in me. That it is God at work in us by the power of his spirit that actually generates our ability to live according to his word. Here's what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that connects this simple idea of God in me. Paul in Philippians 2 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God 
who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Growth in the Christian life is not a result of our will, of our effort. It is the fruit of God's will and work in us, producing a will and a work for his good pleasure. Not God, then you. Not God, not you. Not God plus you. God in Christ by the Holy Spirit in you. We sing a song here. The title is the most helpful song title I think I can think of related to this topic. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. A pastor by the name of Dick Kaufman phrases it this way. Christians think that we are saved by the gospel, but then we grow by applying biblical principles to every area of our lives. But we are not just saved by the gospel, we grow by applying the gospel to every area of our lives. This is where Paul comes back into the picture and says, this is why we must fix our eyes on Jesus. In Hebrews, the author will say that Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And it's as we fix our eyes on Christ on Monday morning, when the allure of self-righteousness creeps in, and we begin to question our standing before the Father, when we begin to question the progress of our spiritual growth, that we can cross-examine ourselves and remind ourselves all of the blessings of our salvation do not come through works righteousness. They come through faith in Christ alone. What freedom to know that we have a certainty and a security on Monday morning in the face of self-righteousness that we have been fully accepted by God because of the perfect work of Christ on our behalf. That our growth and our progress in the faith is secure and certain because what God started, he will bring to its perfect completion. We will be conformed to the image of Christ. And how will that happen? Through deeper and deeper faith in Christ's work in our lives alone. So fix your eyes on Jesus. Don't simply be the Christians who hear the message of the gospel, who, like it says in verse one, right, that it's before our eyes this morning as the gospel is being preached, it's before our eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified for us. Be the types of people who on Monday morning will draw this image to mind and center our lives on the gospel of Christ crucified, raised, and descended for our sake. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have done so much to save us from our sin and to save us from ourselves. We thank you for the mighty redemption accomplished by you, Lord Jesus, for our sake. That you lived the life that we could not live. That you died the death that we deserve. That you took upon yourself God's wrath that we deserve. 
that you were raised for our justification, that you are given new life so that we might receive spiritual life and that our lives would be united to yours. And you are ascended even now, Lord Jesus, seated at the right hand of the Father. Help us to turn our eyes from earthly things, to fix our eyes on you, Lord Jesus, the crucified Redeemer who has died, raised, and ascended. Give us certainty concerning the gift of your spirit to us, the gift received by faith alone. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.